this yes. is hell. Okie doke. This is hell, and we stream live from our studios here in Chicago every Monday through Wednesday at 10 a.m. U.S. Central Time. Our world broadcast premiere every week is on Saturday mornings when we air from Chicago Sound Experiment. Our home radio station, WNUR 89.3 FM, Northwestern University Radio. On January 20th, 2023, three years and three days ago, the state of Illinois and the city of Chicago announced pandemic restrictions, including a stay-at-home order, which would go into effect the very next day. The first day of spring, which is not the way anyone wanted to celebrate the vernal equinox up here in the Northern Hemisphere, where we mark the return of life, not doing what is necessary to keep us safe from a deadly virus. While there were exceptions from the stay-at-home order, including the media, and while we say this is not the media, this is hell, we gladly pretended to be part of the media so we could keep doing this here show. We figured we're that... We're such hypocrites. Yes, we are. We figured that during... When it comes in handy. We figured that during a time of crisis in those unprecedented times, people desperately needed perspectives that were not being offered by the more corporate establishment brand of the media, which was misleadingly repeating over and over and over and over and over again that we were all in this together. When we clearly were not, after the stay-at-home announcement, Northwestern University immediately went on lockdown, prohibiting anyone from being on campus. At the time, we had no way of getting This Is Hell on air at NUR, which had gone into an automated broadcasting mode. However, we continued doing shows from this studio above a pool table in a bar, some 25 minutes directly south of Northwestern's campus. But for the next three months, we could not air on WNUR. So to show our appreciation to our longtime listeners on WNUR, and to go back and remember exactly what we were going through at this time three years ago this week, we are playing the Lost Pandemic tapes, the This Is Hell interviews that were never aired on our home station, Chicago Sound Experiment, WNUR, because of the statewide stay-at-home order. So we are starting today with an interview from April 27, 2020, with conservationist Vijay Kolonjavati, author of the Uneven Earth article, The Pandemic Is Ecological Breakdown, Different Tempo, Same Song. Comparisons between the toll of COVID-19 and climate change are not helpful because they view each as two separate things. In that piece, Vijay wrote, like climate change, the COVID-19 pandemic affects everyone ultimately. But unlike climate change, the virus occurs at a much faster rate and more severely impacts the most economically vulnerable who cannot afford or have the possibility to engage in social distancing. Governments are walking on a tightrope, a balancing act between ensuing, or sorry, ensuring public safety and well-being and maintaining profit margins and growth targets. It's the same, it's the very same dilemma as climate change, just occurring at a faster rate, uh, rising everywhere and obliterating the possibility to ignore it and think about it later. In fact, one may argue that the pandemic is part of climate change and therefore our response to it should not be limited to containing the spread of the virus. Normal was already a crisis and so returning to it cannot be 
an option, Vijay writes, as we were learning and would continue to be reminded of throughout the first year of the pandemic. Far too many people, including people with power and especially the wealthy, valued profit margins over public safety in people's lives. For many, money is more important than humanity. The beginning of the pandemic revealed how those we know and love respond to a crisis, kind of a climate change dressed rehearsal, if you will. And if the rehearsal is anything like the show will be, it's possible the effects of global heating will be far worse than any of us can imagine. If a section of the population will arm itself to defend its denialism of a virus that is killing millions, who knows what they'll do once there is no winter anymore. What will happen when climate change deniers are still deep in denialism despite climate change causing food shortages or price gouging? Which all means today we begin our week-long look back at the very beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic lockdown featuring interviews that never played on our home station due to statewide stay-at-home orders. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, live streaming and podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Sebastian Vupper. This is your last show running the board, Sebastian. Unless, of course, you are back in town for some reason and feel like doing a show, you're always welcome. However, you will continue to work with us behind the scenes and doing your past inside the present when you give us the historical context we need to have a better understanding of right now. Sebastian, what will you be talking today about on uh, today's Past inside the present. Uh, today's uh, like the pandemic uh, episodes. It's well. This is kind of a, a, a repeat. It's a leftover thing that I wanted to do during the best of shows and didn't get to. And because currently our apartment is like deep in um, boxes. Well, yes. <laughs> uh, I just printed the thing out that I had prepared for the, the time that I couldn't do it, and so now I'm just doing that again. And I am talking about. Um, basically the just world fallacy and how um, there is no arc of justice that bends towards anything. The, the universe doesn't care. Oh, so this is Uplifting how. stuff. <laughs> exactly. As, as my fans expect from me. <laughs> it's going to be weird not seeing you a couple of times every week here on the show. Uh, we truly appreciate everything you have done and look forward to your con- contribution moving forward. Are you actually leaving Chicago on Wednesday or is there a chance you might be at office hours? Uh... I don't know. Um, we are well. We are leaving Chicago on Wednesday, but we're coming back uh, because we have so much stuff uh, that we foresee that we need at least uh, two trips. So uh, on Wednesday, we pack everything that we can into the biggest U-Haul that you can drive without a trucking license. Um, truck that over to Grand Rapids. Unload Stay the it. Night. Unload it. Returned the same night. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Uh, and then the next morning, repeat the whole thing. Um, and then on Friday, we will clean the apartment when it, uh, when, once it's empty, load the cats because the cats will be the last thing that comes. Right. And then, um, yeah. Is that why you have to come back the same day because of the cats? And, I mean, they, they would probably be okay, but... but- yeah, it's also also just they're so going to be freaking out because everything's gone. Yeah, they're they're going to be freaking out, and also there's just like the the landlords who want to you know like the handyman who want, who want to you know get the whole thing ready ready for the, for next. the next tenant. And when is the next tenant moving in on the first? Yeah. Oh man. Yeah, I, I don't know. Like, it's, it's always this like. <laughs> Is is I, I don't really know like ideal like landlords are weird that way where it's like basically <laughs> they never want a place to be empty they never want the place to be empty and if the, if the place is empty well 
they I, I don't think they care if the place is empty. They want always somebody to pay the rent. So that's a good point. Yeah. So I like for the landlord, the ideal situation is uh, is if the, the party that moves out does not find an, the next tenant in time for the next month. So the the place is empty. Somebody pays rent while the supers and handymen just repair everything. Right. Um, but, like, yeah. Instead of having the place go empty for a month while they're completely remodeling, which yeah. always sucks. <sighs> so, more important than any of that, Sebastian, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is... Wait a minute, let me just pull it up here. Billy boop. Um, <clears throat> what weather event would finally bring humanity to its senses? Maybe. <laughs> what weather event would finally bring humanity to its senses? Maybe. The question from hell was going to be, what's wrong with Chuck this week? And just in case you're keeping the score at home, <laughs> it is a pulled left calf muscle that it's making it very difficult for me to walk. I might have a torn calf. I do not know. Good Lord. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct a message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to chuck at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we will be announcing the winner of the question from hell following, for the first time ever, we are taking one of my monologues out from behind the Patreon wall, and we will be closing this week's show with a monologue I did on Patreon back in October around my anniversary about being with somebody who I'm not married to for a very long time. Dear Patreon patrons, this is not a breach of contract. <laughs> no, it is not because there has been no contract. If your answer is our favorite, uh, if your answer to the question from hell is our favorite, you will get your choice of whatever This Is Hell stuff you want. You can see all of our stuff by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Uh, brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell, and Sebastian has this week's hangover cure, and it's disgusting. <sighs> this week's hangover cure is, speaking of ca- speaking of calves, just not that kind, <laughs> not for vegetarians. On New Year's Day, bestliveonline.com, one word, ran an article headlined, Six hangover cures we bet you've never tried before. These might be just what you need after a night with one too many. End quote. Uh, written by Lauren Jarvis Gibson. And Lauren would lose that bet as five of the six cures she offers have already been suggested here as the weekly hangover cure on This Is Hell, including bread, an IV, acupuncture, salmon and soup, uh, but there is one we have never recommended before, and that would be, drum roll please, steak. Disgusting. <laughs> Can you imagine being hung over and then putting a piece of steak in your mouth? Uh, I love steak. I mean, depends on the kind of steak, depends on what comes with the steak. Yeah, I guess. And uh, how, how hungry I am at, at this specific moment. But All right, how about tartare? <laughs> <laughs> Why? Anyway... <clears throat> Yes, steak as a hangover cure because there's nothing more enjoyable than the first thing in the morning when you are hungover than uh, to eat a big meaty steak. Best Life Online's Jarvis Gibson writes, "When you're quote when you're hungover, the last thing you might want to do is to eat something, especially if your stomach is screaming at you. However, a nice juicy steak could be the best cure for the next time you vow to never drink again." And we bet it will be pretty delicious. 
they then, for whatever reason, quote someone who is the founder of a trivia company saying, quote, the protein and fat in steak helps to settle the stomach and provide energy, while the iron in steak helps to reduce the symptoms of a hangover. End quote. Jarvis Gibson adds, quote, protein is always a good option for when you're, you aren't feeling like yourself, as it is, as it is loaded with necessary nutrients, end All quote. Right. They close with another quote from the trivia person saying, quote, steak is packed with B vitamins, which can help to energize your body and provide essential nutrients. Eating steak can also help to replace lost electrolytes and provide essential minerals, end quote. This makes this week's hangover cure a big, meaty, juicy, fatty steak. That is, if you inexplicably take your hangover cure advice from a trivia company entrepreneur. <laughs> yeah, which makes no sense whatsoever. By the way, it also reminds me of my favorite line from uh, Naked Lunch by William Burroughs. At one point, he says, you can take that slunk to Walgreens. That's just one of my favorite <laughs> lines. You know what a slunk is? Uh, no. It's a calf that has died in childbirth it, oh. and birth, and then the cow drags it around until the friction of the ground pulls the dead calf out. So that's slunk. So, yes, one of my favorite lines from, from Naked Lunch, you can take that slunk to Walgreens. Uh, as I said, this is Sebastian's final show running the board here on This Is Hell, unless he happens to be here in Chicago and feels like producing a show. Alexander Jerry also has been uh, trying to move on from the show for the past year, but fortunately he stuck around during my health crisis last year and made certain the show continued, as did Sebastian, Lindsey Gorey, Dan Hill, Richard Norwood, and Theron Humiston, and during the earliest days of the pandemic, Daphne Augustin. So we are looking for a new producer who we will train to run the board. From what I'm told by producers, it's much easier than you think. It's not that hard to learn. And uh, as long as you can be here in person at least one day each week, Monday through Thursday, for approximately three hours, starting at about 9.30 in the morning. With this position, not only do we provide a living wage due to the support of our listeners and those subscribing at Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishelp, but you also get access to our studio for your own audio projects. We are located in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood at 2251 West Devon Avenue on the second floor above Carrie's Lounge, that's C-A-R-Y apostrophe S. We are also looking for those who can work with us remotely, including updating our website and audio editing. We got an email from Bryant in San Antonio, Texas, who is interested in remote work. Uh, Bryant writes, Hi Chuck, heard on the show that you were looking for remote or website help. I'd like to help out, but uh, what did you need help with exactly? In solidarity, Bryant. Bryant and everyone else who may be interested in working with us remotely, essentially we would be sending you an audio file and you would then build the web page for that interview or show, grabbing a poll quote from the conversation, finding an image online to put with that discussion or show, and then editing the uh, page, including the guest bio or bios for or any typos. If you are interested in either the position as a board operator and producer here in studio or collaborating online, email me at chuck at thisishell.com. That's chuck at thisishell.com. I would also add we could probably use somebody who knows uh, how to do marketing because we currently are basically just doing amateur hour when, when it comes to that. So if you have any expertise in marketing and or community management, which I know are not the same thing, but like stuff like this are things where we kind of lack. And uh, yeah, if you can support us with uh, some expertise in that field, 
Any, uh, in, yeah. any insight any is insight appreciated. Any insight is welcome. So, coming up on the show, conservationist Vijay Kolonjavadi, author of the Uneven Earth article on uh, how climate change and the COVID-19 pandemic are one and the same. We will tell you what happened on our most recent episode of This Is Hell on Patreon, exclusively for subscribers at patreon.com slash thisishell. We're going to have a new edition of The Past Inside the Present when producer Sebastian Vupper, who holds a doctorate in history, provides us with the historical context of the past so we can have a better understanding of the present. Live from the United States, where capitalism is the virus, this is hell. This is hell. Before the virus, we were already living in a world facing the pending disaster of climate change. Now we have to deal with both the breakdown of the planet's climate and a pandemic. Here to explain how the two are not separate, but very related and linked, Vijay Kolonjavadi is author of the article, The Pandemic is Ecological Breakdown, Different Tempo, Same Song, Comparisons Between the Toll of COVID-19 and Climate Change are Not Helpful Because They View Each as Two Separate Things, which originally appeared at Al Jazeera, and you can now find in a long-form version at Uneven Earth. That's unevenearth.org. Welcome to This is Hal Vijay. Hello, Chuck. Thanks for inviting me here. Glad to be here. Thank you for being on the show. Vijay is a postdoctoral fellow at the Institute of Development Policy at the University of Antwerp and a contributing editor at Uneven Earth. Again, that website is unevenearth.org. And you can find Vijay on Twitter at his last name, Colin Javadi. That's K-O-L-I-N-J-I-V-A-D-I. You write, only a couple months ago, the world was taken aback by unprecedented bushfires in Australia, massive youth movements striking for stronger action to tackle climate change, and a groundswell of protests across the world demanding greater democracy, an end to state oppression, and against debilitating economic austerity in places ranging from Hong Kong to India to Chile respectively. That's the new normal, apparently, that we want to get back to, right? That doesn't sound all that great. What happens when, if when this is all over, Vijay, we, if we find ourselves back in the exact same place we were before? And should that be a goal? Well, I, I think actually we, we probably, well, we certainly will not end up in the same place, regardless of whether we, you know, whether the intended, the intention is to return to normal but I fear that, you know, what we saw in 2019 with some of those with with, uh, you know, these unprecedented uh, environmental catastrophes, but also social movements and social um, social unrest is that, you know, they're going to take on a different kind of form that could be further exacerbated by the things that we are seeing with this with this pandemic. And so um yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, returning to normal in that sense is not only in returning to to those to that kind of state of unrest and anxiety on a on a you know national and global scale, but uh, possibly you know ramped up on on a scale that we haven't seen before. You write that COVID nineteen felt like it came out of nowhere. The situation and potentially the virus itself is rapidly evolving, has taken world governments as not by surprise and left the stock market reeling. Its emergence, however, makes self evident the fault lines in global production systems and the ultra connectivity of our globalized world. Can the global production systems simply 
either fix itself or be tweaked incrementally, put a Band-Aid on it, and we can move forward with the global production system we had before the virus without causing more viruses? Absolutely not. Uh, I mean, I think, uh, um, you know, that, that sort of quick fix technical solution is, is, is definitely what is being uh, advocated. And I think that, um, you know, we, of course, we need to, to, to push forward to find a vaccine, but, but just looking to find a vaccine for this virus is, is certainly not um, going to stop future pandemics from emerging um, of this very nature, potentially far more, more uh, extreme and more dangerous than this one. And um, again, this, this sort of goes back to looking at the root causes of these of these problems, which do very much have to, which very much have to do with with uh, uh, global food production systems and uh, their interconnectivity, the speed and, and hyper acceleration by which um, they are moving, the cheapening of labor and of resources to enable these, you know, to enable these, these circuits of production to move at breakneck pace. Um, and if that is, is you know, if, if the idea is to quickly get back to that as, as soon as possible and to erase, you know, what we've experienced right here, then we are going to see, you know, we're, we're, not, we're not actually addressing this problem at all. But you mentioned, and, and, uh, go ahead. And, and of course, just to say, just add that that, that it will uh, exacerbate the, the situation going forward. As you were pointing out, uh, they look for cheap inputs when it comes to the global food production system. They try to keep the costs as low as possible. They try to get the food out into the market as quickly as possible. You mentioned the speed as well. Are all those things absolutely necessary for us to feed the planet? Is the same global production system that you see as causing the pandemic the same global production system that we must have in order to feed the planet? So that's 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 a great question. I think that's the that's the storyline that we're being fed. You know that that if we can get this back to normal. And if we can increase that pace and if we can increase, you know, the productivity, we will ensure that everyone has access to food and is able to to benefit from a system that how it was operating before. But we have seen um, the vast amount of inequality with the food system, not only with I mean, with the food system, but also in general, um, that was the state of the normal before this pandemic. And so and was increasing over time. Um, to, to fairly astronomical levels, you know, to levels of inequality we've never seen before as a, as a, as a society. And so to say that, you know, that, that we need to, you know, we need to increase that, that um, you know, that productivity, we need to make those inputs cheaper, we need to get those, those productivity cycles moving faster so that we can actually achieve, uh, everyone will have access to, to food, let's say, that has not materialized you know we've not seen we've seen that materialize only for a very select few for those for example who might be walking down manhattan or somewhere in central london where they're able to just go into a into a um you know uh, uh one of these you know eat one of these very quick uh service places where you, where you can buy a packed sandwich uh, as fast as you can, and the shelf will be filled right away. For those people, yes, that's where it, it works, but it doesn't work for, for the vast majority of people on this planet. 
So how would the global production system have to change so it would not be vulnerable to crises and also would not spread those crises globally? All we have to do is give up on the live animal market. All we have to do is give up on certain aspects of globalization like uh, eating food and produce that's out of season. Do we just have to make a few minor tweaks and we can move forward? So no, I don't. I don't know. It's definitely not not some minor tweaks. I think what we're what we're talking about here ultimately is um, and to 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 forward on to the to the other um, increasing risks of climate change uh, more broadly uh, is that we're going to need you know this idea of quick quick uh, tweaks and fixes is not is 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 part of the problem here you know we need to there's a set of relationships and a way of relating to each other and to our world and to the things to making sure that we have the basic needs for future generations for our current and for future generations that's going to require a cultural shift that that you know is more than just some some quick tweaks it's going to um you know it's going to require, you know, you mentioned shutting down, shutting down live animal markets. I think that that's an example of a quick, you know, fix that I think is 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 sorely is sorely um, sort of misplaced because it doesn't see, you know, it doesn't under, it doesn't kind of look at broader cultural factors that are at play, that extend beyond these live animal markets. It doesn't look at industrial agriculture systems, how some of those, those you know, wet markets or trade in wildlife species move in parallel to changes in the, in the agricultural landscape and across landscapes in general associated with industrial agriculture. So it's not as though, you know, we can, we can separate wildlife harvesting and say, oh, if we can just fix that, then we've, we've addressed this problem and we won't have to deal with it again. We have to see how some of these um, sort of um, practices move in parallel with, with the broader systems of production in which we live in. You write the pandemic is part of climate change and therefore our response to it should not be limited to containing the spread of the virus. Normal was already a crisis and so returning to it cannot be an option. What role did climate change, in your opinion, play in either causing or spreading the virus? Because that's the main contention of your piece. Yeah. Um, so I think I think it's it might be useful to step back just from focusing on climate change here, but to focus on um, sort of uh, capital capital capitalism, let's say specifically as a, a an ecological process or sort of an ecological regime. I think we we were so used to sort of thinking about ecology and environment as somehow separate from the from the behaviors that humans we humans uh, act within and specifically the you know the global society um, that we've created and but yet this this these you know these sort of cycles of of intensive production on all scales across the globe is itself a sort of ecological regime you know we are not outside of nature looking at nature as though it's you know some kind of, you know, it's not the outside of us. We, whatever we are doing is very much part of that ecology. And so um, I think if we think about it like that, you know, it's not just climate change, but it's all kinds of other elements or aspects of ecological breakdown, which are inter, intertwined or interrelated with climate breakdown. 
and intensive agriculture and the ways by which landscapes are being rapidly transformed around the world um, and the, the, the frontier, the sort of commodity frontiers that are constantly being moved forward and the potential for humans to, to interact in new ways with wildlife and to create the conditions as minuscule or as minute as they may be, that may result in the transmission of previously unknown pathogens to be able to, trans, to, 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 to move through these sorts of interrelationships and result in things like pandemics. I mean, the, the likelihood, of course, is very small, but when we look at it on a global scale and we look at the production systems that are associated with, with on the ensemble, associated with climate change, but also ecological breakdown more generally. And, and I, I, I think about intensive agriculture being a particular, particularly notable one here. Then we can start to see how, even though that chance is very minor, it's, it, it gets amplified um, because of how, in, how systemic uh, some of these, um, what, we're, what, we're, what we're doing to the planet is. So um, what yeah. what explains that, uh, just getting back to a point you were making earlier, so what explains that idea of nature being outside of us? What leads to us having this idea where we are not a part of the planet that we're living on? Yeah, I think I think it it you know it goes back to it goes back you know this is something that that goes bef- goes beyond and before capitalism specifically it goes back to an idea that you know we are we humans have the ability you know even this idea of of going back to normal is very much an example of this we have this this sort of arrogance or this presumption that we can once again make the world accommodate to our needs that the world that we live on isn't actually we're not actually a part of it we're somehow above it and um if anything this virus has told us well you know slap it's been a major slap in the face and and it's been you know we are you you are part of this world and you know we will move fluidly through your bodies and through your borders and through your schedules and your you know your calendars and your clocks whatever you have because you too are part of this world. So this idea that, that we are, you know, above it, above it all is, yeah, it, it's, it's the sort of modern conceit, which unfortunately, I mean, that it's going to take a lot more than, um, you know, yeah, I want to say it's going to take, it's going to take some, some pretty, pretty um, deep soul searching to, to un, un, unravel and unlearn some of the things associated with that that myth, this storyline that we are sort of above it all. You cite a recent guest on our show, the uh, biologist and epidemiologist Rob Wallace, and how he argues in his book, Big Farms Make Big Flu, that increasing land grabs by agribusiness from industrialized countries has pushed deforestation and land conversion into overdrive for faster and cheaper food production. And you add the transformation of vast areas of land into rationalized production factories provides ideal conditions for well-adopted pathogens to thrive. Any argument that claims pathogens and plagues have always existed across history will neutralize the globalized nature of current land degradation and hyperconnectivity, allowing diseases to spread faster and further than ever before. So if we believe plagues have always happened, and they always will, we just have to deal with it, you end up in a world that can only be imagined by people like uh, Trump's economic advisor, Stephen Moore, who asked recently why we cannot all simply wear 
spacesuits so we can get the economy up and going again without realizing we can't even get medical face masks to everyone. So getting everyone spacesuits is not likely. And that one of the great things about living on Earth is we don't have to wear spacesuits like we're on the moon. So has this virus, is this the opening of Pandora's box and we'll never be able to get the virus, the pandemic back inside? Yeah, I mean, I, I, um, you know, if you think of the, the the virus as sort of a metaphor as well, not just the virus, you know, we we will get the virus under control. But what I fear about this pandemic is that it normalizes, and you know, we were talking about normal returning to normal, and but what I fear is that returning, you know, this it, it normalizes a state of affairs where precarity, I mean, obviously precarity was always there, but now we've reached a new level of sort of health, global health and ecological precarity, which is just going to be, you know, it's going to be normalized to the extent like precisely, precisely, you know, that if we can just, those who are wearing their, their spacesuits are the ones who are going to get jobs and survive. You know, we're, they're the ones who are going to manage. And, and as continual crises associated with climate change continue to pop up, that normalization process is what I really, really fear is going to continue to be the storyline, the myth, because, you know, we're not willing to, to uh, you know, um, do some of that soul searching in relation to that myth. We're so, so hell bent on, on the arrogance of it all. So, this is this is this is a, a very 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 deep seated concern I think um, and um, you know as long as 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 long as we continue to 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 see the impacts of climate change and to raise the alert um, make a clarion call about what impacts climate change could have in the very near future. What this virus, what this pandemic is telling us is that you know you can just you know wash your hands and I think as I mentioned, wash your hands and just sort of stay indoors and keep working. And, you know, there will be some people who who's working, you know, whose labor is continuously precarious and will be made to to support the rest of society, as we're seeing right now. Um, yeah, so just just to say, I think that that I think this this pandemic provides a, offers us a very sobering and very, you know, scary uh, portrait of what normal means and what normal is now being made to look like. You, you write that the massive scale wildlife breeding of peacocks, pangolins, civet cats, wild geese, and boar, among many others, is a $74 billion industry and has been viewed as a get-rich-quick scheme for China's rural population. Is it fair to say the virus is an unintended consequence of China's rural population's attempt to make money, a population that may be desperate and impoverished. Can we chalk all this off to an innocent mistake made by Chinese farmers with unintended consequences? So, yeah, I mean, I guess to clarify, if, the, if, the, if you mean, you know, kind of looking at the situation in terms of what happened specifically in China um, in relation to the emergence of this virus, I would say no. You cannot um, you you cannot 
put the blame directly. You cannot put the blame specifically on, on, on them, you know, and it's the same reason why you can't put the blame on individuals for ecological crisis. You can't blame, I mean, you can put the blame on, you know, you can say that someone who's, who's flying around the world, you know, five times a year and more, um, is more likely to be creating the conditions for climate change or someone's lifestyle based on lifestyle choices. But ultimately we're talking about a systemic problem here. Um, that's rooted in our in capital uh, in in this sort of hetero patriarchal uh, capital system that we live in. So I don't I don't think you know it's you know the same thing could have happened as well. It could have emerged out of uh, a market in 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 Western Africa, for example, um, which you know where similar kinds of viruses have emerged in recent past and could have easily become a global pandemic there as well. So I don't think, I really don't think that one can say, and, and I mean, it could also have happened from the perming of melt, per, uh, melting of permafrost in, 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 um, in Russia, for example, where, where in the past anthrax had been, had, had, had arrived or had, had been um, sort of spread as a result of melting permafrost there. So it, it, these are all, these are just some examples of where, where ecological and or social impacts or interrelations with the world could have resulted in a pandemic of this nature that isn't specific to China or any other specific, you know, culture. And I think it's, it's really dangerous and extremely, extremely, um, yeah, it is extremely dangerous to be seeing these kinds of remarks um, being placed on, on, on specific people or specific cultural practices. I think we have to look at we have to look deeper than that at this point. So do you see climate change denialism in the Trump administration's response to COVID-19? And if you do, how can climate change denialism affect a government's response to a pandemic? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely would see would see that denialism. I mean, it was already there even before in, in Trump's regime, even before any of this. And, you know, the fact that that environmental policies that the EPA has basically become redundant, even not even ex barely existent uh, at this point um, uh, in, in, in relation to the pandemic shows that there is no no intention to see climate change as anything related to this pandemic. Um, and I, in fact, it's it's hard pressed to even see that the administration is seeing this as anything as as even being a health crisis, actually. It seems like they're taking this as purely an economic crisis, um, which clearly it isn't. You know, it's 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 this isn't even about an economic crisis. It's it is about the ultra wealthy concerned about make sure ensuring that their profits are going to be sustained. That's it. It's not if it was if it was even just an economic crisis, then it would be focusing on ensuring that everyone has basic services and that those basic services are put into place. But that priority isn't even there to begin with. So going so I've just like jumped from climate to health to economic, but just going back to the climate crisis, absolutely not. I don't see that um, the administration and in many administrations, you know, not just in the US, but that 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 link or that prioritization doesn't seem to be there that the you know um there are some some who are saying that we need to the eu for example is maintaining their their commitment towards a green new deal 
uh, especially at this time, given that there is a pandemic. So we do see that there is some some links being made, but it's it's really not being given the priority that it perhaps could to avoid uh, pandemics of this nature happening in the future. You also point out that somehow, like magic with the COVID-19 pandemic, safeguards in the way of protection for healthcare professionals, grocery store workers, personal protective equipment, and investment in health research that was non-lucrative just three months ago is suddenly a societal priority. That is, for now, once the pandemic ends, rest assured capitalism has no intentions of keeping it at bay. Can capitalism be profitable, be successful, and fight the pandemic? Why can't capitalism simply make protection against future pandemics, make safeguards profitable so we can all be safe? Yeah, that, that's definitely something that capitalism can do. And, you know, there are those who are making profit off of it right now, you know, by by um, producing the, the kinds of PPE that are necessary for responding to the to the current to the current moment. Um, the problem is, is that once what we've seen is that capitalism doesn't think about long-term consequences of its actions. It only looks at, it only thinks about short-term profits. So as soon as a pandemic is over, capitalism will no longer see it lucrative. And when I were talking about capitalism, we're talking about those, those, those entities, those private enterprises that are engaged in in um, providing public providing services that are necessary or equipment or goods for people, um, those those will no longer be seen as lucrative in a time when there isn't a pandemic. And you know when we 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 already see this with respects to pharmaceutical companies that have simply failed to invest in. Um, looking at at new antibiotics or looking at the the impacts of antibiotic resistance. Um, um, as a result of 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 you know intensive agricultural production of certain um, for for livestock species, for example, we see that there hasn't been that kind of commitment in times of normality. Let's say so. I think in a short term, yes, it can be seen as very profitable. But I don't. I mean, I, I don't. I'm not. I don't have the the faith that capitalism would be be uh, able to do both. Would be able to think long term. Um, while also main, making sure that it's attaining short-term profits, which is really what it's about. Is the problem that we just don't hold those who profit from capitalism that it has, causes uh, uh, consequences that we would rather that they did not cause? Is the problem that we just don't hold those people responsible? Have we essentially eliminated risk? And what happens when you eliminate risk from capitalism? So, I mean, holding risk is also an impediment or an obstacle to profit. You want to make sure that, you know, if you if you put in safeguards, if you're putting in policies or regulations or any kind of safeguard to ensure longer term well-being, and you, know, you can think of environmental policies, for example, um, that have been implemented on in 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 agricultural land, for example, but in a global competitive market, all of those those safeguards immediately and instantly become impediments to 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 profit because somebody else is going to be able to produce whatever you're producing at a faster rate without that obstacle, without that impediment somewhere else in the world. And so ultimately, those kinds of safeguards are always seen as 
um, end up end up being seen as a sort of um, you know impediments, unless of course you have you know very strong economic powers or blocks that are able to put in those kinds of safeguards and still maintain you know their own well-being and not have to worry about um, you know the the fallout the economic fallout associated with having done that and that's what we see in Europe we see that with European Union policies and safeguards um, and we see that in in relatively developed countries you know in these overly developed countries I would say that have historically you know gained their wealth as a result of extraction from other places and exploitation and oppression of other people and that's how they're able to maintain that but as in a, in a purely market in the sort of cutthroat um, capital market that we see we just don't have you know many countries do not have the um, don't have the privilege to be able to put in those kinds of safeguards and to be able to take on certain levels of risk over others you also have this really fascinating view of time, and I want to make sure we talk about this. You write how a major distinction between COVID-19 and climate change has to do with how we perceive time and the temporal effects of both. A recent study raised an important concern of attempting to respond to climate change on a time scale that is convenient to society, in other words, clocks and calendars, but was absol- has absolutely no relation to the time scales of changes we are actually witnessing with climate change. The fact that whole ice sheets melting, 2030 sustainable development goals and election years appear in unison as daily news stories illustrate the temporal disconnect with how society is responding to the changes occurring in our world. It is thoroughly arrogant to assume climate change, like COVID-19, is going to respond to our schedules. What happens to COVID-19 and what happens to climate change when it meets the temporal nature of breaking news? How does the framework, that lens, potentially lead to any misunderstanding we have about pandemics or global warming? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, I think that I think you know when when the impacts of the pandemic or when we see sort of yeah when we see the the yeah the impacts or the fallout of climate change actually happening in front of our eyes, um, or we see in, or the pandemic, climate change, or ecological breakdown. What tends to happen is. Um, it just gets neutralized in a way when it appears in our news because we're not able to we're not able to feel the immensity and the intensity of that change that has happened. So if we understand time, I mean time is really a perception of change, um, and so when that perception of change is qualitative, which is obviously qualitatively very very different when we see you know the larsen sea ice sheet melting off of antarctica something that wouldn't happen for you know for 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 thousands of years or for example the fact that you know scientists are saying that in by 2030 we would be we would be experiencing a climate that was similar to the mid pliocene era of 300 million years ago you know these kinds of temporal changes are so extreme but as soon as they fall into our news and as soon as they get, you know, um, shared with everything else that we're experiencing and as soon as they get embedded within, you know, election cycles of four years and, you know, sustainable development goals and, and other kinds of 
strategies that we put in place that are, again, you know, let's accommodate the world to our needs, not let's accommodate ourselves to what we're experiencing in the world. You know, then then what ends up happening is those daily news stories just get neutralized and people are left um, kind of made to be, you know, paralyzed. You know, how do you respond when when what you should be responding to would make you, you know, jump out of your seat and make you almost like jump out the window, you know, like, but you can't because you're, you're just like looking at the news like any other news story of the day. And so, so time, I think is a very, it's a very important, you know, element here, you know, we're, the, the very fact that, you know, at this moment, governments are sort of walking on that tightrope, um, trying to look after the public needs in relation to the pandemic, but also trying to reinstate normality and putting economies back into 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 order um, or getting them the engine running again is an example there of that temporal distinction. You know, it's kind of like, well, we want to live in the moment that we're experiencing, but also we want to gain control of of you know, of, of time, of the temporal rhythms that the way the actual world operates to be back on in our favor. So you see that, you know, that tightrope, that balancing act that's happening right now all over the world, which was the same balancing act that we saw with climate change as well. Um, the, the, it, it, it's the same, it's the same situation that we're trying to negotiate with time. We're trying to, we're trying to get it to fit into our rhythms, um, and and when we when I say our rhythms into the rhythms of capital production, because it, it has to do with, you know, if we think about work and leisure, both of those thinking about some of the the, the, the ideas of E.P. Thompson um, from the late 60s, looking at industrial work, work culture, time is really just about capital, uh, the way capital moves and capital is produced and accumulated um, in its um, sort of rhythmic periodicity. So, so this is this is it's it's um, it's definitely something that we're we we're not able to to act upon. And um, I think looking at this temporal dimension is extremely important because the failure to 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 understand that the specific temporalities of certain um, changes, whether they are climatic, whether they are, you know, for example, with this, this, with, with, uh, COVID-19, they don't operate within the temporalities that we impose on them. So we have to pay attention to the temporalities that they work upon or they move through space and, and then act accordingly to those temporalities. So, Time, that's a really interesting point, that time is an implement of control. And we cannot control the virus, but if we put up deadlines for sheltering in place, we give people dates as to when they might be able to go outside again, at least we'll have this this sense that we have some control over the virus, even though we do not. So, Vijay, is it better or worse for the government to feign that control? Does that kind of control mislead the public or does it at least help them with morale in a time of global crisis? Do we need to dupe ourselves into believing we have control or does that lead to a poor public response? Yeah, I think that's that's an interesting dilemma there. I think it's probably a little bit of both. You know, I think that um, wanting to, you know, ensuring that that morale is there is also a very stabilizing thing and a very important thing because, of course, 
like, you know, to be desynchronized, I guess, let's say from our, from the temporal rhythms of capital of normality, let's say is, is very destabilizing for a lot of people. Um, and so then, so there, there is an element there that requires sort of finding those rhythms again that allow us to understand that we can we can make sense of what we're dealing with. But at the same time, going too far along that line, which is also what we're seeing, is means that, you know, that we can't it, it again paralyzes us to be able to make systemic change because it prevents us from actually taking the moment, this specific moment that we're living in, to do that sort of soul searching work to be able to reinstate or to live in different kinds of temporal rhythms that are more appropriate to the times that we are in and that we have been living in prior to this pandemic and that we'll continue to live in as a result of ecological breakdown, which even if we were to, you know, change our systems entirely, which is very unrealistic, but assume that just ideally assume that we did, we had a different kind of, of, um, of, of society, a completely different society, one that was based on collective well-being, let's say, then, then we would still in, we would still be confronted with the impacts of climate change. We would still be confronted with the impacts of ecological breakdown that that themselves will manifest in the years to come and in the decades to come. So. Um, so I think it's it's probably a little bit of both in the sense that um, we need to we need to we need to kind of feel like we can make sense of what's going on somehow, but at the same time not too much sense that we are just reproducing the same thing while in self isolation and while in, you know maintaining certain um, inequalities that do exist between workers and between um, you know. Uh, especially women and also racialized people. You write the fact that CO2 emissions have declined so drastically in concert with the reduced flight demand and manufacturing activity in China provides striking evidence of how economic growth is directly responsible for the existential impacts that two and three degrees of warming would cause to society. Economic growth causes climate change, and the entire planet is currently dependent upon an economic growth development model. So what happens when we no longer live on a development model of constant growth? Does How much does will that have an impact on what we call our quality of life? Will we have to suffer under a lack of economic growth? Well, first of all, I just want to mention very quickly that because you, you raised that line, um, that this pandemic really, really blows out of the water the idea that we can have economic growth and um, reduced environmental impact at the same time. You know, this that has been the myth that has been tooted around for the last you know decade, you know, with green growth. Um, with renewable, you know, energy systems and all of these kinds of um, this sort of, yeah, this sort of narrative around environmental um, sustainable development and, and a green economy, you know, that we can have both of these at the same time. I think that this this has really, really showed uh, the true colors that, um, you know, the, so, the economic growth that is being counted on or that is being considered just does not correspond or align with um, reduced ecological degradation. We're actually seeing the opposite of that relationship right now. Um, so, 
um, yeah, so so th that's an important element to 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 uh, consider. Um, I do think that. Um, um, I, I, sorry, I'm going to have to ask you to, to repeat that last bit that you you asked me uh, there. That's all right. I, 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 we're running I'm short on time, and I want to make sure that I get to these. Uh, well, because you were saying that uh, economic growth is the problem that's causing climate change. So to what extent can we have an enjoyable life, a life that is oh, right. doesn't have a quality of life that's undermined when we are not pursuing growth? Right. So I think just very briefly just to say that, you know, the economic growth that is being considered again is we're looking at GDP growth and that's not that's not you know the question wasn't about it was about how how that economic growth was being distributed so it doesn't matter whether that economic growth measured purely as as GDP was rising or falling we could be in a recession but if we're all you know we're all relatively we're, we were all if that that recession was equally distributed, then it wouldn't necessarily have that much of an impact on our well-being. And so that's something that I think we should pay attention to here. This isn't just about um, a trade-off between economic growth and reduced well-being. We can still have well-being without necessarily being, you know, yeah, without necessarily having, you know, um, stock market figure, figures going over the roof. I think this is also a myth that that is being that's that we're hearing in the news and that is being promoted with this pandemic and is just completely false. So I want to ask you one kind of feel good question before uh, I ask, have to ask you a really horrible question. So you write plan D growth can also be facilitated by solidarity networks to support especially elderly neighbors and meeting their needs. A genuine love in the time of coronavirus moment, so to speak. This is the this idea of plan D growth instead of pursuing growth, a plan D growth. Such groups have already spontaneously emerged in cities around the world from Seattle to Montreal, from Wuhan to Gothenburg and London. We've heard of crony capitalism. Well, now corona capitalism has become a thing. Obviously, the conditions surrounding COVID-19 are not ideal for the uh, just climate transition that is so badly needed, but the rapid and urgent actions in response to the virus and the inspiring examples of mutual aid also illustrate the society is more than capable of acting collectively in time to what it is experiencing. Is the pandemic revealing then people have far more power than they may have thought? Yes, definitely it is. I think, um, I mean, this, I think that a lot of those systems of solidarity already existed, you know, prior to the pandemic, and they just sort of became activated or signaled as a result of this. So, and, and I think that there is a that's sort of a positive feedback potential, you know, when people start to talk to their neighbors and start to feel that they can contribute at a time when people are in need, then it it provides meaning to people's lives. It, it creates new connections. It fosters um, new ways of, of relating to each other and to to those who we might not have, you know, been in, so engaged with in the past. And it and it it, it actually uplifts you know, whole people's lives. And we can see that on, on the level of whole communities, um, even whole cities, and it could, and it's happening all over the world. Um, so it's, it's something to, to remember, you know, this is something to, we, we should never forget, you know, obviously, the conditions are going to change, and situations are going to change, and we're going to have, you know, the, 
the system that we're living in is going to try and force us to return to normal. It's going to try and basically try to to expunge this memory out of our minds and make us from you know go back into that this way of thinking where we should be alienated from each other and we should not be engaging with each other and so that's something we sh we should never forget you know we should build off of this momentum and use it as a sort of um you know grounded collective power on the ground to to fight the systems of capital and to put pressure on our state national our, our national local governments and local governments to force them to pay attention to the people and the people's needs. One last question for you, Vijay. We've been speaking with Vijay Colin Javadi. He is author of the article, the, This Pandemic is Ecological Breakdown, which you can find at unevenearth.org. And you can find Vijay on Twitter at Colin Javadi. That's K-O-L-I-N. J-I-V-A-D-I, our final question for each and every one of our guests, is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. You write, indeed, the coronavirus will come roaring back in the form of the most punitive structural adjustment the world may see since the 1980s. For example, the World Bank Group has recently stated that structural adjustment reforms will need to be implemented to recover from COVID-19, including requirements for loans being tied to doing away with excessive regulations, subsidies, licensing regimes, trade protection to foster markets, choice and faster growth prospects. Is the World Bank's plan then for the new normal post-virus to be more austerity and more deregulation, the very programs that you and Rob Wallace argue got us into the pandemic in the first place? And do we have any say in the matter? Do we have a choice? Well, yeah, I, I mean, that is uh, definitely the question from hell, I guess, uh, because the response would be, you know, if we were to to adhere to to the World Bank's, um, I think it's uh, David Malpass who made that comment, um, you know, if, if we were to adhere to to that, to that prospect, then yes, that will result in a, in a very hellish situation. And um I mean, again, I don't think, unfortunately, I don't feel that this is the kind of conversation that we're having at the level of our, uh, uh, we're not having this conversation enough, you know, obviously, we have to think about the daily needs of, you know, ensuring the, the, the prevention of the propagation of this virus, and to ensure that essential workers are, you know, receiving the care and the, the support that they need at this particular time. And, you know, there's so many other immediate preoccupations, but, but at the same time, we cannot, you know, th that outcome, that, that austerity, that severe austerity that is waiting for us, you know, that was, you know, that has already been announced even just a couple of days ago or a couple of weeks ago, you know, very shortly, they did, they wasted no time. You know, they literally within two weeks of, of the start of global lockdowns, this was a message that came out. And, you know, this comes at a time when many countries are seeking IMF loans to be able to withstand the economic crisis that they're facing now. And so, we're not even we're, we were never given the choice. We were not given the choice, uh, you know, to begin with. You know, the G20 sits in their closed room, closed roomed meetings. And, you know, this is the clearest indication that normality, the normality that we're trying so desperately to, to, to obtain is a normality which is deadening. 
and um, you know we we need to now more than ever rise up and demand to demand to our governments and demand in our within our society that this is not replicated and that we need to realize that as you point out in your article that as quickly as the pandemic hit effects from climate change can hit just as fast and so this is our first real test of how we are going to react to those quick and dramatic and drastic changes and so far we're not doing all that great on this pop quiz Vijay, I really appreciate you being on the show. This is fantastic writing, and again, you're one of the many guests that we have on a list that we are now going to be bugging for the rest of your life to have come back mm-hmm. on our show. So thank you very much for being on this week. Thank you so much, Chuck, for having me. It's right. been a pleasure. Take care. And we're back. So, yeah, uh, Vijay Col- uh, Colin Javadi, he has a new book coming out uh, that's co-written with Aaron Vincigian, another past guest on our show. Aaron was on the show to talk about uh, degrowth, and so he has a new book out with Vijay coming out in the fall, and we'll have them both back on the show to discuss that new book. Staring into the abyss so you don't have to, but how can you not? Because this is hell if what you heard from Vijay Colin Javadi on the twin crises of climate change and the pandemic actually being one larger crisis. Show your appreciation by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which streams live on Thursdays at 10 a.m. Chicago time. Podcast shortly after at patreon.com slash thisishell, or you can show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell just by visiting thisishell.com and clicking on support. When you do become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon, not only do you get a special code word giving you a discount on all of our stuff at thisishell.com when you click on support, but you also get access to over 350 past Patreon Patreon podcast with each and every one featuring a monologue by me and a classic interview that is currently not available anywhere else online. On last week's Patreon podcast, inspired by This Is Hell, the lost early pandemic tapes and playing interviews never before heard on our home station, WNUR 89.3 FM, Chicago Sound Experiment, I took a trip down recent memory lane and considered the Hopes for our future we may have had in the summer of 2019, just before the pandemic, and how a pandemic would dash those hopes in the first few months of 2020. That's not to say I was waxing nostalgic for the good old days or wishing for some return to normal, as much as I was engaging in the kind of nostalgia that comes from its Greek root, meaning a homecoming of sorrow. But we all know, or are in denial of the obvious, that there will be more pandemics as long as economic growth, deforestation, fossil fuel burning, climate change, inequality, and globalization continue. Which means, when it comes to the time before the pandemic and the first few months of the virus being at its most lethal, we should probably remind ourselves of what worked and what went horribly, horribly Wrong, And we were going to play an interview on Patreon that we did back in January of 2007 when we spoke with Salim Loney, a former spokesperson for the UN mission in Iraq and a columnist for the Daily Nation in Kenya, which neighbors Somalia, who had just written an opinion piece that was posted at the New York Times uh, that foretold the ongoing disastrous U.S. involvement in the war between Somalia and Ethiopia. Salim wrote back then, the U.S. instigation of war between Ethiopia and Somalia, two of the world's poorest countries already struggling with massive humanitarian disasters, is reckless in the extreme. Unlike in the run-up of Iraq or to Iraq, 
Independent experts, including the European Union, were united in warning, in warning that this war could destabilize the whole region, even if America succeeds in its goal of toppling the Islamic courts of Somalia that were ruling the country at the time. Sounds great, right? Well, it turns out that that interview right before the, sh- right before the show we discovered was only eight minutes long. We only had eight minutes of that conversation that still exists, as sadly there are some gaps in our over 26 years of archives. Instead, unbeknownst to me, we played another very intense conversation as chosen by Alexander Jerry, and that is an interview from the week after speaking with Salim, a conversation that is intact when we spoke with Mike Holm. Live from London, Mike was professor of environmental sciences at the University of East Anglia and director of the Tyndall Center for Climate Change Research, who posted the BBC News opinion piece, Chaotic World of Climate Truth, where he discusses how the language of chaos and catastrophe has gotten out of hand. In that article, Mike argues that I believe uh, climate change is real, must be faced and taken action, but the discourse of catastrophe is in danger of tipping society into a negative, depressive, and reactionary trajectory. Now, you might be thinking, wasn't there something else about East Anglia University and climate change researchers admitting climate change was a scientific conspiracy? If you are thinking that, you are correct. Two years after this conversation with Mike that we shared on Patreon this past week, he got caught up in that email hacking controversy, which, according to the journal Nature, quote, a fair reading of the emails reveals nothing to support the conspiracy theories of climate change denialists. But the only way you can hear my reflections on the days just prior to and immediately following the COVID-19 virus making landfall in the United States and our talk with a climate change scientist on why climate change doomsaying leads to depression and undermines activism, the only way you can hear all of that is by subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Sebastian, please remind us what is this week's question from hell, and I don't think anybody has sent in any answers yet, but have they? Uh, this week's question from hell is what weather event would finally bring humanity to its senses? Maybe. Maybe. Um, our own Ronaldo M. writes, probably none. All right. And uh, SLS writes, electroconvulsive therapy inducing thunderstorms. Um, hmm. Yeah, that's uh, that everybody, everybody on the dance floor, I guess. Sure. Um yeah, that's and that's all the that's, that's all we've got that's, so far. That's all we got so far. The uh, part, the monologue we will be playing from Patreon on this Wednesday. Uh, we're going to take it from behind the paywall. The uh, uh, monologue that I did on October thirteenth of last year, a monologue on being unmarried with the same person for a very long uh, period of time. That was suggested to us by SLS for our best of 2022 shows that we had during the holiday season, that we played during the holiday season. SLS said, what about just taking this monologue out from behind the paywall? And that's what we're going to be doing on Wednesday. So for those of you who are not Patreon subscribers, you'll get a little taste of what we do behind the paywall. Again, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell gets their choice of whatever piece of This Is Hell merchandise they want. You can see all of our stuff by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your 
question to the answer from uh, <laughs> your answer to the question from L at our Facebook page. You can tweet it at us and you can email it to us. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show. There is a new idea. I know. The answer from L. I know it's got to be a whole Jeopardy format. <laughs> I give you the answer, then you give us the question. We got to do that once. We'll have uh, more of your answers. The question from Hell later this week. Manufacturing dissent since 1996. This is Hell, and it's now time for Dr. Sebastian Vuper and the past inside the present when Sebastian, who has a PhD in history, gives us the historical context from the past that we need to have a better understanding of our present. Sebastian, take it away. The past inside the present. So previously, I talked about uh, that the past has a relational connection to the present, but not a progressive one. And that is something I want to expand on today. So what does it mean that the past is relational and not progressively related to the present moment? It means that there is a connection between yesterday and today, but it does not mean that today is an improvement on yesterday. And that is extremely important to understand in the current political moment. Because, well, chances are that you have been lied to by well-intentioned people, but lied to nonetheless. You probably heard uh, the old MLK Jr. bromide uh, that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice, and uh, that's just not true. Because that assumes that there is such a thing as a moral universe. The universe, however, does not care. It has no moral. There is no bending towards anything. That bending is just a post-facto reading into events that already took place. Am I saying Dr. King was wrong? Uh, yeah, well, kinda. I'm generally just not a fan of any kind of just world theories or other fallacies. The past was not worse than today just because now we have iPhones and back in the day they didn't or that today women can now have their own bank accounts and back in the day, well, they needed their husbands to do that, which is why divorce rates were so low. Um... And that is just a pretty dangerous assumption that, that the modern world is better than, than the ancient world or, you know, like that today is better than yesterday just because it's further along the time. Uh, that's just a wrong assumption. And I sometimes wonder why people think that way. There is indeed something soothing about the idea that everything inevitably bends towards things becoming better. Everything will be all right, no matter how bad things seem right now. That seems to be the message here. And worse, the message seems that everything will essentially work out by itself because that is the natural way of things. There is some sort of implied inevitability to all of this. But rights that are hard won can be easily lost if we think they just stick around by themselves without a vigorous defense. And I wonder what people who disagree with the Nazis in Germany would have thought about this. After all, for all its failings, the Weimar Republic was still a freer country than Nazi Germany was, by almost all means possible. But neither was Germany's fall into Nazism a fluke, nor was it a progression over Weimar Germany. Things got inarguably much, much worse for quite a lot of people. And that's before the war and the extermination part of the Holocaust really took off. And one can find similar examples across history. Historian Ira Berlin warned about this in his 2003 book, Generations of Captivity, when looking at the long history of African Americans. 
the high school history textbook version of African-American history often boils down to a linear narrative that begins with enslavement and progressively improves through the waypoints of emancipation, liberation, and finally the civil rights era towards full equality and then culminating in the election of Barack Obama to the presidency, after which racism is over and solved forever. But, and this narrative... This is a narrative that, that the historical record just simply does not support. First of all, slavery itself was not an unchanging institution, as I talked about last week, but one that waxed and, uh, and waned across 250 years of its existence in the United States. Like, again, everything people do, slavery had a history, and the institution underwent tangible changes over time. At first, African slaves were not much worse off than white indentured servants. And then through the introduction of black codes and the invention of the black-white spectrum, and I am grossly oversimplifying here because I only have so much time, slavery changed into a much harsher regime that made acquiring freedom for black people much, much more difficult. And then things remained relatively stable until the Industrial Revolution and industrialized cotton fabric production turbocharged the demand for cotton, which in turn turbocharged the demand for slave labor, and overall worsened the situation of the enslaved people dramatically until the Civil War. And then emancipation happened, and things got largely better for black people during the brief period of Reconstruction between 1865 and 1877. But then Reconstruction failed, and under the Jim Crow regime, black people were again reduced to lesser citizens with fewer rights that were robbed of hard-won freedoms and rights from the Reconstruction era. And the list goes on and on. You get the idea. Ira Berlin calls this counterpunctual history. The present status quo is not the inevitable endpoint, and things do not perpetually get better for people all the time. The world does not always improve. That is a fallacy, especially when it comes to minority rights. The world does not automatically strive towards the best, most just situation possible. Just because the present is the current, if fleeting, endpoint of history at any given moment does not mean that it is the best moment in time, especially not in a for-everyone sense. The problem here is that we as human beings need narratives, and history, or rather the world at large, does not naturally provide narratives. Things are always messy, and historians can show trends and sort the things they find in the mess of the historical record into a narrative, but narratives don't necessarily emerge naturally. However, as people, as humans, we are animals that are wired for pattern recognition. Also, we want positive reinforcement and ultimately are easily mollified when being told that, well, everything will just be all right, even if clearly it won't. What's the point of this here thought exercise? People need to be careful when being told that everything will be all right and that the world is fundamentally just. Because this core assumption seems to be deeply rooted in, in the American psyche. When it comes to quote-unquote progress to minority rights, to making the world a more socially just place, those victories must never be taken for granted. Because the world is not just, the world does not care, and is ultimately completely indifferent towards people. Rights come to those who fight for them, and who keep on fighting for them, defending them tooth and nail. 
We need to foster an understanding that the world is not just, that there is no truth to many, many narratives, and that progress is a waxing and waning thing without any fixed end goal. Maybe this is the German in me, where we have been told to be watchful for warning signs of Nazism returning for most of our lives. Since just because they were defeated in 1945 doesn't mean they went away, and it doesn't mean that they can't come back to power in some other form and in some other place, maybe. And another thing to keep in mind here is that we are living in a country, at least those of us living in the United States, we are living in a country that has been carved up politically between two opposing fronts. Another prevalent narrative here is one of the pendulum, but I also don't think that the, oh, the pendulum swung hard in one direction, and uh, now it's going to swing in the other direction, so just wait, it will come back around, is in any way a useful, you know, analysis, or, or even a useful narrative at that. Because that, again, is a narrative that implies that there is a natural motion in these things, that notion, and that notion breeds passivity. Why bother working for change if you can see that the pendulum will just swing back in time? That narrative also implies that the Obama administration was as far to the left as was the Bush administration before it uh, was to the right, and that the Trump presidency was again as far to the right as Obama was to the left, and, and then that Biden was again as far to the left as Trump to the right. And it, it doesn't make sense. Those are simply false assumptions. Also, there are many more poles to the world than two on a pendulum. The world is not that simple, even if that makes for better horse race style election coverage. That doesn't mean that there is no de detectable dynamics in history, that there are no detectable dynamics in history that, that can be used to explain how things work out. But these dynamics are complicated and they require and contain action from the people. Nothing happens by itself. And if you don't stand up for the rights of minorities, then those who oppose those rights will stand, well, without opposition. But there is a dynamic we should talk about that does explain some of the things we have been witnessing, and that dynamic has been going on for a while in our quote-unquote Western culture. And that is that when the people at large feel that their existence, or rather their prosperity, is threatened, they tend to withdraw into tradition. This was very visible in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis and has only become worse since then. Traditional roles offer safety and security in uncertain times, so people then see forces that seek to undermine or abandon those traditions as a threat and begin to work against them. Which is how we seemingly inexplicably see a rise in quote-unquote traditional marriage nonsense in otherwise civilized nations where this kind of model had long since been waning. Does this explain the recent rise uh, of the American, uh, where the recent rise of the rise of the American far right comes from? Well, partially, but this also belies the notion that the universe bends towards justice, or that there is some sort of pendulum. And people who are trying to tell you concepts like those should make your alarm bells ring. The world is not fundamentally just. It requires work to achieve and maintain justice. The world does not perpetually improve for the better. There is no pendulum. And history does never repeat itself. It does rhyme sometimes, however. I will give it that. And, uh, well, that's, that's it for today. <laughs> you know, they have that atomic clock. You know, yeah. the uh, Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. Yeah, yeah, have yeah, that the clock. Doomsday Clock. Doomsday Clock, right. They should have a, uh, 
uh, a doomsday pendulum. We should just have a gigantic pendulum somewhere that tells us exactly how far we are to the right or how far we are to the right, to the left. And I say that the people who should be behind that uh, are, uh, let's see, uh, the National Standard, what is the, the conservative magazine? And then we could have the Nation, they could fight it out. And oh, the National st- Review? National Review, there you go, and have the Nation, they can just fight it out over their partisan silliness. Sebastian, will you be doing your first uh, Pass Inside the Present from Grand Rapids next Monday, or are you going to be needing a week off while you're unpacking? Uh, I can't, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, right. Can can we play it by ear? We can. I play will it by try ear. to, but I can't make any guarantees. I don't blame you. And again, thank you for everything that you have done for the show, that you will be doing for the show. It's, it's been a truly, truly, and deeply appreciated. We look forward to more episodes of the past inside the present in the future as well. So, Sebastian, what are the interviews we will be playing coming up during the rest of our series? This is Hell, the la- the lost early pandemic tapes of uh, re- you know past interviews that were never played on WNU our home radio station, because there was a complete lockdown at Northwestern University uh, at the time. So tomorrow we will be playing uh, from March, an interview from March 31st, 2020, uh, with economist Eileen Applebaum, co-author of the Center for Economic Policy and Research Report, The U.S. Response to COVID-19, What's in Federal Legislation and What's Not But Still Needed. This is long before the CARES Act was put into place. This is just when they were discussing uh, after the pandemic being, uh, after the virus being here in the United States for only a couple of months, what the original discussions during the Trump administration were for federal legislation when it came to the pandemic. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. Like, uh, not too long ago, I listened to some episodes from another podcast. I know, I know. I'm sorry. I, <laughs> I also listen to other podcasts um, uh, from like from like summer of 2020 or something. And I just it just hit me back again just how awful that time was yeah. and how we sort of like have kind of memory hold that because holy camoly was that was that ever? Yeah, we want to pretend period. like toilet paper hoarding never happened. Or that, you know, like this whole thing where Trump basically was like, I don't know, I don't care, just just let her rip. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And then the people were concerned about Operation Warp Speed. There are a lot of scientists who were really concerned about the efficacy of the uh, vaccine when it came out because they'd been rushing it through so quickly, even though it ended up working at the end. People had no idea of what the vaccine would do. So, yeah. And then who's going to be our final interview of the series? And uh, the final interview of the series uh, from March 25, 2020, Max Haven, who wrote the Roar magazine article, No Return to Normal for Post-Pandemic Liberation. Today, new forms of solidarity, mutual aid, and common struggle are emerging in the pandemic. How will they shape tomorrow's struggles for a post-capitalist world? I have to hand it to these... uh, Lefty magazines. <laughs> they l- write long sub headlines, boy. Yeah, just like they you really need, go on. You need like an additional oxygen tank for those. I know. Also coming up later this week. Uh, let's see. What else are we going to do? We are going to be. Well, we're going to tell you what's going to be on Patreon later this week. We'll tell you who our guests will be on next week's show. We're sharing a monologue that I did back on October thirteenth about my very long relationship that is not in any way involved with a marriage license and uh, all that kind of stuff. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live streaming and podcast host Chuck Mertz. Thanks to Sebastian Vooper for producing. Thanks for another Past Inside the Present. Thanks for everything that you've done for the show. We told you so. 
This is hell. My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>